Some of us spend more time with our colleagues than with our own families. Day after day, we share victories, disappointments, and meals together. And over time, we can develop strong bonds. But what if you started to suspect that your closest colleague at work had dark intentions? How sure would you have to be before you betrayed them? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're telling the story of Fritz Veermann, the Dutch lab technician who tried to alert the authorities to a global threat and was ignored. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fritz Veermann had always struggled to make friends. Born in 1944, he grew up in a small village outside Amsterdam during the Second World War. And partly because he had a German mother, he wasn't very popular with the other kids. He became used to people throwing xenophobic insults at him, even his paternal grandfather. He was happiest alone, making things, and was fascinated by the intricacies of how everyday objects worked. Unsurprisingly, science was his favorite subject at school. As a working-class boy, he never got the chance to go to college to study science at university. But when he was old enough, he took jobs as close to the subject as he could get and was delighted when, in his early 20s, he was offered the position of technician at an engineering laboratory near the home he shared with his parents. The lab was a magical place for Fritz. Each brightly lit room was crammed with an array of machinery, and there was a constant mechanical hum in the background. His role there was to help scientists in their work designing advanced ultra-centrifuge technology, a process that could turn uranium into enriched uranium more efficiently than ever before. The lab was developing the processes for use in nuclear power plants, where clean energy was generated for homes across the Netherlands, Germany, and the UK. But the same technology, if tweaked by the wrong people, could be used to develop nuclear weapons. As a result, security at the lab was tight. When Fritz started there in the mid-60s, the Cold War was in full swing. The Soviets were on the lookout for ever more powerful weapons to help them square up to the states and their allies. 
and the European nuclear industry was keen to keep the latest technology away from them. If it ended up in their hands, it could tip the political balance with worrying consequences. Because of this, each staff member at the lab had to go through a security check and sensitive documents and machinery were not allowed off the premises. While Fritz liked being close to the whirring machines, his days at the lab were often boring and repetitive. Sometimes he worked alone in the basement for days on end, perfecting minute details of the ultra-centrifuges. And at other times, he had to take reams of intricate photographs of the instruments for research records. But whatever he was working on, he was aware that he was a step below his scientist colleagues. And he was always on call for coffee duty. Just like at school, Fritz didn't make many friends. That all changed, though, in May 1972, when a stranger walked into the cramped office where Fritz, who was 28 at the time, was working at his desk. The stranger was a little older than Fritz, in his mid-30s, and was from Pakistan. He wore a Western-style suit with his tie tucked into his belt and introduced himself as Dr. Abdul Qadir Khan. Smiling broadly, he said he had just started there as a senior scientist and would be Fritz's new office mate. Abdul's beaming smile took Fritz by surprise a little. The technician had worked at the lab for several years at that point and wasn't used to such friendliness at work, especially from senior staff. It's a pleasure to meet you, said Abdul. His Dutch was very good, with just a hint of a Pakistani accent. The two quickly became fast friends. Both had an insatiable curiosity for the sciences, and the work at the lab truly excited them. When Abdul realized how passionate Fritz was, he took the young technician under his wing. And every time he discovered something interesting in the lab, he would call Fritz over, and they would study it together. By the summer of 1972, they were spending most of their lunch hours together, playing tennis at the research center's courts by the river or strolling through the sunny streets of Amsterdam. As they walked, Abdul would tell Fritz all about his childhood in India and Pakistan after partition and his studies in universities across the Netherlands, Germany, and Belgium. In fact, it was in Belgium that Abdul had met Fritz's boss years back. That was how he'd got the job in Amsterdam. Soon, Fritz became a regular dinner guest at Abdul's home, too. There, he met Abdul's wife, Henny. She'd been born to Dutch parents in South Africa, and her family had moved back to the Netherlands when she was a teenager. She was more introverted than Abdul and was kind and polite just like their two young daughters, Dina and Ayesha. Abdul loved to cook, and whenever Fritz went over, he treated the younger man to meals of spiced barbecued chicken and rice, Fritz's favorite. In return, Fritz would bring the Khan's generous portions of Dutch cheese, made by members of his extended family. For Fritz, who was shy, single, and lived a mundane life at home with his parents, his friendship with Abdul was life-changing, opening his eyes to different cultures. He was fascinated by the food the Khan served him, Abdul's Muslim faith, and the family's open-door policy for the other Pakistani guests who shared their table from time to time. 
At work, the pair became inseparable. And Abdul began to accompany Fritz when he was sent to photograph minuscule design changes in parts of the machines. The senior scientist openly admired Fritz's skill in photographing them in such extraordinary detail and asked lots of questions. He told Fritz that his technical photos were like works of art and even asked if it would be possible to have copies. Despite finding this a strange request, the technician was flattered and happily obliged. Over Abdul's first few months at the lab, Fritz started to look forward to coming into work in the morning for the first time ever and enjoyed Abdul's flamboyance and laissez-faire attitude, which contrasted with his own. This was proved to him when, during dinner at Abdul's one evening in October 1972, Fritz noticed a stack of work papers on a desk by the dining room window. When he looked at them more closely, he saw that they were technical drawings and German descriptions of the ultra-centrifuge machines they had at work. Top secret documents that should have been locked in a fire-resistant safe at the lab. But here they were, visible to anyone who happened to walk past on the street outside. When Fritz asked about them, Abdul said he'd brought them home because his wife Henny was helping him translate them into Dutch. While Fritz would never have dreamed of taking papers home like that, he had to assume that everything was above board. Abdul was his senior. After all, he just did things differently to Fritz. In December of that year, seven months after Abdul had started at the lab, he and his family flew home to Karachi, Pakistan for the winter vacation. And when he returned to work in January 1973, Abdul had brought back gifts for everyone, sweets for the secretaries and miniature novelty carpets to decorate his colleagues' desktops. Fritz was pleased to see his friend back. But despite Abdul's generosity, he couldn't help but feel there was something slightly different about him, a subtle change in his behavior. Abdul was spending much more time on the phone than he usually did, speaking in what he could only assume was Urdu, his mother tongue. Then he began excusing himself from the lab at strange hours of the day, claiming that he was attending meetings. On one occasion, Fritz observed him cramming rolls of film into an envelope and sealing it. And then, one night at the Khan's house, he saw that Abdul had taken actual centrifuge components home from the lab and left them out on a table. Fritz felt uneasy. This was far more serious than the papers. These were parts of potentially dangerous advanced machines, ultra-centrifuges that could create enriched uranium more efficiently, with potentially explosive consequences in the wrong hands. Trying to keep his voice casual, Fritz asked Abdul what he was doing with the machine parts, but Abdul dismissed his concerns. He'd just gone through the discard bin at the lab, he said, and salvaged these scraps. He was simply keeping them as souvenirs. There was nothing for Fritz to worry about. With the gift of hindsight, it's easy to criticize Fritz for not taking his concerns straight to his bosses at this point. But the truth was, he still trusted Abdul as a senior member of staff with a PhD. 
Besides, their boss had known Abdul since his university days in Belgium. What would he think if Fritz started throwing accusations around? Accusations that, for all he knew, were entirely unfounded. At that time, in early 1973, it was the Soviet threat that preoccupied Europe, not that of Pakistan. So while Fritz was aware that Abdul had broken some of the lab's rules, he had no real sense of what the scientists' motives could be. And so he said nothing. But in fact, Abdul did have a motive to collect information on nuclear technology. And his coming to Amsterdam was part of a much bigger plan. In the early 1970s, tensions between India and Pakistan were at an all-time high. 26 years earlier, in 1947, the Indian subcontinent had been cleaved in two after nearly two centuries of British rule. The independent states of India and Pakistan were created, triggering migration on a colossal scale, as millions of Hindus made their way to the predominantly Hindu India, and millions of Muslims, including the family of a 10-year-old Abdul Khan, went to the predominantly Muslim Pakistan. Brutal and bloody fighting broke out along the border, between 500,000 and 2 million people were slaughtered in the conflict. And many Pakistanis, like Abdul, were left with a disdain for India and the Hindu faith. In the decades that followed, the hostility between the two young states continued to simmer. Many in Pakistan feared that their neighbors wanted to destroy their country in order to create a united India. And in 1971, war broke out between the two nations, and Pakistan was defeated. The new state of Bangladesh was carved out from Pakistani territory. It was just weeks after this painful loss that the Pakistani president, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, first instructed the top scientists in the country to build an atomic bomb. He believed that if Pakistan were to survive, it would need nuclear weapons. India had possessed the technology to produce them since 1964, and Pakistan was worried that if they went ahead and built the bomb, they would have the upper hand. And so, in 1971, President Bhutto vowed that Pakistan would get one of their own. We have no choice, he said. But developing nuclear weapons is not easy. They can't be bought off the shelf. And every country with nuclear capabilities guards their technology and machinery very carefully. Pakistan would need its best scientists on the case to track down the information and resources they needed. And so, just a few months after Bhutto's announcement, Abdul, with his impressive academic background and Dutch wife, had come to work in one of the finest labs in Europe a lab which was developing a new, cutting-edge process of uranium enrichment. And it was there that he'd met Fritz, a lonely young technician who had no idea about Pakistan's plan, and who had helped him collect photos of important nuclear equipment. Throughout early 1973, Fritz and Abdul remained close, despite the slight change in Abdul's character. 
Fritz had decided to push his concerns about the papers, the components, the photos, and the phone calls out of his mind. Even as the scientist introduced him to two Pakistani diplomats at his home, even as Abdul started snooping around a nuclear plant, despite not having the right security clearance, and even as Abdul told him about the heavy gold ring he kept with him at all times, just in case he had to sell it in a hurry and buy a ticket back home. With Abdul's encouragement, Fritz even went as far as to start planning a trip to Pakistan. Although in the end, it was this that would ring real alarm bells for Fritz. It was spring 1973, and for weeks, the pair had been spending their lunch hours excitedly discussing Fritz's vacation. Abdul couldn't wait for his friend to see the sights, sample the food, and understand his culture even better than before. And one morning, Abdul arrived at the lab flushed with excitement. He had good news, he told Fritz. He'd spoken to some of his contacts, and the Pakistani government was offering to cover the cost of Fritz's entire trip. It was as if a light had been flicked on inside Fritz's head. Why would Pakistan want to do him a favor? He knew that nothing in life was free. There had to be strings attached to this, and he was sure he wasn't going to like them. Fritz tried to seem casual as he told Abdul that while he appreciated the offer, he decided that he couldn't go to Pakistan after all. And while Abdul seemed disappointed, he accepted Fritz's decision. Then Fritz made his excuses and left the room, mumbling about some photos he had to take. Outside the building, he thought back over Abdul's behavior in the last few months. Was it possible that he'd been collecting nuclear secrets for the Pakistani government? Were they joining the arms race? And if this was true, was he an unwitting accomplice? There was no denying that he'd helped Abdul study the intricacies of the equipment, provided him with photos, and turned a blind eye when Abdul had gone against company policy. He decided he had to tell someone. He could no longer be the judge of whether Abdul's actions were above board, but he couldn't bring himself to go directly to their boss. Instead, he went to a phone booth on the streets of Amsterdam and punched in the number of the body in charge of ultra-centrifuges in the Netherlands. When a secretary picked up, he asked to be put through to the director, but the woman refused to bother her boss. So Fritz told her about his suspicions instead, trying to convey the seriousness of the message. He said that he believed Dr. Abdul Qadir Khan, the man he'd been sharing an office with for the last 10 months or so, had broken several security rules at the lab, and that he thought it was possible that he was a spy for Pakistan. When he heard himself saying this all out loud, Fritz wondered if it sounded far-fetched. Paranoia was commonplace during the Cold War, born out of a culture of fear, secrecy, and propaganda. Would his concerns be taken seriously? The secretary listened carefully, asked Fritz for his phone number, and said she would let her boss know. When Fritz placed the phone back in the cradle, he was terrified and relieved in equal parts. While he felt the issue was finally out of his hands, he also worried he might have just got himself into deep trouble. He expected a call from the director later that day, but it didn't come. 
And in fact, Fritz never heard from him. He tried calling again, but still couldn't get through. He then sent a message to the director of his lab, but he didn't get back to him either. Eventually, he felt he was left with no choice but to go to his direct boss. But when he told him about his concerns, Fritz could see that the man was uncomfortable, annoyed, angry. In fact, Fritz claims that his boss reprimanded him. As he saw it, Fritz was wrong to be making allegations of such a serious nature without solid evidence. He told him to leave the issue alone. He was stirring up trouble for no reason. And although he didn't like being told off, Fritz could see his point. Maybe he had been overreacting. It was certainly easier to believe that than the alternative. For Fritz's boss, it seemed the case was closed. The technician was to go back to work and continue sharing an office with Abdul as if nothing had happened. And for the next year, very little did happen. Until, unbeknownst to Fritz, in May 1974, India announced that it had made huge strides with its nuclear program and began testing weapons. This was a blow to Pakistan and Abdul. His country was now trailing well behind in its efforts to match India. They had to move quickly if they wanted to keep up. Conveniently for Abdul, he'd just been given a stack of extremely important work documents describing the lab's latest ultra-centrifuge. This information was extremely valuable to Pakistan and meant that they could fast-track their development of nuclear weapons. Abdul contacted Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who is now Pakistan's prime minister, directly to tell him the good news and was informally made one of the leaders of the mission. Throughout the rest of 1974, Pakistan stepped up their nuclear efforts with the help of Abdul in Amsterdam, who fed them more and more information about the equipment they needed and where to source it from. And all the while, he continued to work at the lab as usual, laughing and chatting with his friend Fritz. He still had no idea that Fritz had told their boss he was suspicious of him. And he had no idea that outside the lab, some other people were starting to wonder about him too. While Fritz's concerns hadn't seemed to reach them in 1973, the Dutch government had picked up on some of Abdul's odd behavior through other avenues, and they had started an investigation. He was tailed at a nuclear trade show where he was overheard asking vendors dubious questions about their wares. And there was evidence that he was telling Pakistani diplomats which nuclear materials to buy from European suppliers. The evidence mounted up. And eventually, the Dutch foreign ministry decided that it was time to strike and planned to arrest Abdul at the lab one morning in 1975. But in the end, they didn't do it. The Dutch Minister of Economics at the time was worried that drawing attention to Abdul would do damage to the country's lucrative nuclear trade agreements. So instead, he'd briefed the CIA in the States. He said he felt like safeguarding the world against the nuclear arms race was more their responsibility than his. They were the ones with the nuclear weapons, not the Netherlands. And he had a business sector to run after all. 
But the CIA took no action either. They decided it would be more valuable to just watch Abdul and track his movements from a safe distance to find out who he was procuring materials from and try and work out what his plans were. And so they just watched. As Abdul went to the lab every day, gathered important information and sent it back to Pakistan. Eventually, in October 1975, the agents quietly alerted the bosses at the lab that Abdul could be a problem. But he wasn't sacked. It was just decided that he should no longer be allowed to visit nuclear power plants. And the agents didn't want Abdul to know that it was because he was under suspicion. So the lab told him he was being promoted. And his new role would be outside the plants, so he wouldn't have to visit them anymore. In the end, it was this odd detail that made Abdul suspicious that the government might be on to him. And so, two months after his promotion and three years after Abdul had arrived in Amsterdam, the intelligence service watched Abdul pack up his things, go to the airport, and get on a plane to Pakistan. No attempt was made to stop him. This would later be branded a monumental error by experts who worked on nuclear security during the Clinton and Obama administrations. Abdul had told the lab he was taking a winter vacation and would be back after Christmas. But in January, he got in touch saying he'd contracted yellow fever and would need to stay longer. Months passed. And eventually, he informed them that he wouldn't be coming back after all. He had taken on a new role in a large government project in Pakistan, something to do with the construction of centrifuges. He wished all of his old colleagues the best. It's hard to believe now, but after he left the lab, Abdul actually kept up good relationships with his old employers, despite what the intelligence agents had told them. And whether for financial gain or simply because he had somehow pulled the wool over their eyes with his unerring friendliness and openness, the company continued to do business with him. At one point, they even sold him expensive machinery, which was shipped to Pakistan. Abdul tried to maintain a friendship with Fritz, too. He would write him letters reminiscing about their time together. Abdul said he wished he could cook barbecued chicken for Fritz again soon, and even offered him a job and a visa. He could follow his passion for photography right there in Pakistan, if only he accepted. Mostly, Fritz ignored these letters. He wasn't aware of the full story behind Abdul's departure, but he suspected, with a heavy heart, that he had been right all along that his only good friend at work had taken advantage of his kindness and of his naivety. And when, in 1977, two years after Abdul's departure, he received a letter that requested technical information from him, he felt that it was further proof. He decided to show it to his bosses, but claims that when they saw it, they instructed him to destroy it immediately. If he didn't, they said, He could go to prison. He shouldn't speak of the matter again. Fritz was shocked at their reaction. Either they were worried that this letter suggested that he and perhaps the company could be found responsible for Abdul's actions in some way, 
or they were concerned that such documents could threaten the business deals they were making with Abdul in Pakistan. Indeed, an executive from the lab had recently visited Abdul and came back with another lucrative order. And Pakistani technicians had even started to come to them to take courses on how to build ultracentrifuges. Whichever was the case, the message was clear. Fritz should keep quiet. Not long afterwards, he was made redundant from the lab he'd worked at for more than a decade. His services, he was told, were no longer required. Fritz was distraught and had no doubt that his time with Abdul had something to do with it, a hunch that would later be confirmed by an industry executive. By 1978, Abdul Khan had established Pakistan's first nuclear enrichment plant in the city of Kahuta near Islamabad. There, his knowledge of the latest technology proved invaluable. And that year, he made enriched uranium for the first time. It wasn't yet weapons grade, but he was working on it. Within just a few years, it would be. At the same time, Fritz Veermann was unemployed and dejected. To make matters worse, soon after he was made redundant, intelligence agents visited Fritz and his wife at their new home. They had some questions. At first, Fritz had assumed that they were seeking information about Abdul, that they were trying to understand how he'd been allowed access to sensitive information. But when they took him to an interrogation room at the police station, he started to worry. There, in the gloomy, windowless room, their questions became accusatory. According to Fritz, the agents suggested that he was a spy, that he'd been deliberately helping Abdul all along. Furious, Fritz reminded them that he'd tried to tell his bosses about his suspicions several times, and he counter-accused them of failing to stop the nuclear secrets from leaving Dutch soil. Whatever this interrogation was, it was too little too late. They'd missed their chance to stop Abdul, who was now miles away and untouchable, and they were going after the wrong man. Their discussion went round and round in circles, until after two long days, Fritz was finally allowed to go home. He was forbidden to share anything they'd discussed. Doing so, the agent said, would be dangerous for Dutch security. But Fritz was angry and refused to comply. Why should he keep quiet when he had already lost so much? Perhaps going public would ensure that nothing like this could ever happen again. And so he talked to the press, keeping his identity hidden. The public was astonished to find out about Abdul Qadir Khan's time in Amsterdam and the state secrets he was likely to have stolen from there. No one had realized how close Pakistan was to getting the bomb. Fritz's revelations, combined with a report from a German TV channel on Abdul's espionage, left the Dutch government looking foolish. And the following year, in 1979, they were forced to commission a report on the scandal. And although he'd stayed anonymous, Fritz felt vindicated. This, he thought, was progress. But the progress was slow going. 
And it wasn't until four years later, in 1983, that the government publicly acknowledged that Abdul might be guilty of a crime and took the case to court. But things didn't go quite to plan. Because Abdul was out of the country, he had to be tried in absentia, and they couldn't find enough solid evidence that he'd stolen information from the Netherlands to charge him with full espionage. So instead, they used the letters he'd sent Fritz as evidence of attempted espionage. Eventually, Abdul was sentenced to four years in jail, but the ruling was then overturned on a technicality. It was revealed that Abdul hadn't been served the summons and that his legal papers had gone missing, all of which meant that Abdul was allowed to remain a free man in Pakistan. To Fritz, the whole thing seemed like a shambles. He knew it was too late to undo Abdul's work on Pakistan's nuclear weapons, but he was frustrated that the scientist would never be held accountable for his actions in the Netherlands. And things were about to get even worse for Fritz. Ever since he'd been made redundant, he'd been job hunting, hoping to land another role in the engineering industry. But time and time again, he was unsuccessful, which he felt was due to his reputation as a troublemaker. Eventually, he was forced to take an administrative role elsewhere, earning less than half of what he'd received as a technician at the lab. His dream of pursuing science for a living was over. And then, in 1984, Pakistan made a worrying announcement. They had finally mastered nuclear technology and, if needed, could detonate their weapons at any moment. It was a terrifying moment for the world. If India and Pakistan embarked on an exchange of nuclear missiles, the impact on the two countries' combined population of around 800 million would be devastating enough but the rest of the world would feel the after-effects, too. Following this news, intelligence agents regularly visited Fritz at home and at work. On one occasion, they turned up to his house on his birthday and interrogated him in his own bedroom as his family celebrated downstairs. He was put on an international watch list, and the authorities frequently questioned him when he went abroad. During one family trip to Italy, armed police stopped his car. It's not clear whether this harassment, as Fritz calls it, was to punish him because they discovered he'd talked to the press or to try and prevent him from spilling any more secrets. Either way, year after year, Fritz was treated almost as if he were a criminal by his own country. While, unbelievably, Abdul was allowed to travel back and forth between Pakistan and the Netherlands several times. He even visited his dying father-in-law there in 1992. And back in Pakistan, Abdul was praised as a hero. Especially when, in 1998, the country finally conducted its first atomic weapons test. It was hailed as a phenomenal success and greeted with jubilation across the country. In the eyes of much of the public, Abdul's actions had ensured their national survival. They were now neck and neck with India. Abdul became phenomenally rich and famous and was known as the father of Pakistan's nuclear bomb. Had Abdul stopped there, he would still, to this day, be remembered solely as a hero in Pakistan. 
but instead, he made a choice that would cast a shadow over him for the rest of his life, and ultimately put even more of the world's population in danger. Whether for financial gain, ideological reasons, or simply because he was forced to, Abdul went on to sell his devastating weapons technology to other countries outside Pakistan on the nuclear black market. It's unknown whether he acted alone. Evidence discovered by the U.S. government suggests that it's because of him that Libya, Iran, and North Korea are nuclear states today. When this was made public in 2003, the Pakistani government forced Abdul to confess his crimes on live television. He was then placed under house arrest for five years. To Fritz, who'd been following his old friend's progress from afar, this seemed like rather a tame punishment. For the rest of his life, Fritz never managed to shake his anger at the Dutch authorities. And in 2020, he claimed that if Iran ever used their nuclear weapons to attack Israel, the missiles would have the words made in Holland written on the side. Although it's important to note here that the Dutch authorities state that they did not actively contribute to the unwanted proliferation of nuclear knowledge. But to this day, it's difficult to understand why some of these decisions were made and why Fritz bore the brunt of them. Indeed, there are many parts of the story that still remain a mystery. It wasn't until recently that Fritz Wiermann received the recognition he deserved when, in July 2020, a report by the Dutch Whistleblowers Authority finally absolved him of aiding Abdul. After 45 years, Fritz was entirely free of suspicion. In the same year, a Dutch documentary maker started making a film about Fritz Wiermann and his story. But tragically, Fritz died unexpectedly in January of 2021 and didn't get to see it air. He was 76. Abdul Qadir Khan died just nine months later, in October 2021, aged 85, from COVID-19. He'd spent his last years in Pakistan, where he was still praised by many because of his contribution to national security. When his death was announced, Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan said that the country had lost a national icon. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParkCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Fritz Wiermann, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Nuclear Jihadist, the true story of the man who sold the world's most dangerous secrets and how we could have stopped him by Catherine Collins and Douglas France, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Ailsa Cameron. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Joe Richardson for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. <laughs>